Good evening, folks. Grab a chair, get comfortable for the next hour. You're about to uh, take part in the Jerusalem book launch of the Hundred Years' War on, on Palestine by Professor Rashid Khalidi. Uh, we hope uh, this is the first webinar that we get to host today, and we hope that this finds everybody uh, healthy and safe in their homes. Uh, Ramadan Karim to all those who are observing Ramadan. Um, my name today is Tawfiq Haddad. I'm the director of the Council for British Research in the Levant Jerusalem branch, also known as the Kenya Institute. We are part of what's known as the British International Research Institute, uh, which are affiliated with the British Academy, with local affiliates both in Jerusalem as well as Amman. Uh, we are one of three co-hosting organizations. Uh, tonight, uh, I'm speaking from the lovely educational bookshop here. Uh, and at a safe distance to my left is uh, Mahmoud Muna, who is a uh, host, and many of you may know, from the educational bookshop in the heart of East Jerusalem. This event is taking place uh, across three different continents. Uh, so uh, Professor Khaled is in Chicago. Uh, we are obviously in Palestine. And uh, the sort of backworks engineering is taking place from the CBRL uh, headquarters in London. Uh, there are three different hosting organizations, as I said, the Council for Buddhist Research is one of them, the Educational Bookshop is the second, and the third is the, uh, the, the Khalidi Library in the Old City here, who are in cyberspace, but uh, will not have, have a members emceeing, but are with us in spirit. Uh, in any case, um, I just wanted to welcome everybody here today. In a, in a second, I'll pass over the microphone to uh, our co-host, um, Mahmoud Mona, who will be able to introduce the speakers tonight. But before we do that, I just wanted to say that uh, the way that this will work is that P Professor Khalidi will be speaking for roughly 30 to 40 minutes with his interlocutor, uh, Dr. Rana Barakat. Uh, we encourage everybody to send questions via the Zoom rooms, question and answer. For those who were unable to access the Zoom room tonight, uh, you, this broadcast is being broadcast on Facebook from the CBRL UK Facebook page, as well as from the Educational Bookshop's Facebook page. So please swing by there. We will also try and take uh, uh, note of the, any questions that might be raised through the Facebook, but we wanted to give priority to local uh, participants in the Zoom room. And the reason we had the pre-registration was because uh, Professor Khalidi was supposed to be in Palestine at the time to do the book launch, but was unable to be here, obviously, because of the situation. So uh, we're very much looking forward to this fascinating new book of uh, Professor Khalidi. Right now, I'm going to pass on the microphone to my co-host, Mahmoud Muna from the Educational Bookshop, who can introduce the speakers themselves. Thank you. Thanks, Tofi. It's really indeed a special evening here for us in Jerusalem. We have always said that Jerusalem is indeed the center of the world, and it's today we're putting that in action. It's nice to see all types of participants from all around the globe, uh, indeed with a great emphasis on local audience. It's, uh, it's my pleasure yet one more time to introduce Dr. Rashid uh, um, in his city in Jerusalem. Um, Rashid is a great scholar and he's a very good friend. His uh, actual resume is very long to actually read from or to introduce, but I will say he has received his BA uh, from the Yale Universities back in 1970, and his DPhil from Oxford in 1974, and he's the editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies, 
and was the president of the Middle East Studies Association and an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiation. He has five or six books he has written, and today we are very honored to have uh, the opportunity to speak about his most recent, and in my eyes, one of the most um, enlightening book for a generation of mine. We are very honored that Rana Barakat from Zait, a dear friend and uh, from the Palestinian uh, think tank, Birzeit University, to join us in discussion. Rana is a Shabake policy advisor, and she's an assistant professor of history and contemporary Arab studies at Birzeit University in Palestine. She received her PhD from the University of Chicago, writing about popular politics and resistance in early 20th century Palestine. Her research interests include the social history of Jerusalem, colonialism, and the revolutionary social movement. Uh, with that having said, I will leave you in the safe hands of Rashid and uh, Rana. Let me start by thanking everybody who's attending and especially uh, everyone who helped to make this possible. Uh, Tawfiq, Mahmoud in particular, Rana of course, um, the Khaldi Library, um, Raja, Khaldi, my brother, uh, and everyone else who's working on it in London, in Jerusalem, and in Birzeit, uh, where Rana is. I, I'm, I'm gonna just say a few words about the book. Uh, and then I'll hand over to Rana, who is going to pose some, I assume, very difficult questions to me. And we'll have a dialogue about them. Um, and then uh, we'll move after about a half an hour to questions from, from you in the audience. It's just an, it's an honor and a pleasure to be connected to Jerusalem virtually. I, I wish I were there. I was supposed to be there now. What can you do? Um, we're stuck, all of us. Uh, and this is the next best thing. Uh, and so I'm really, really pleased that, uh, that Mahmoud and Tawfi have managed to arrange this uh, together with Maggie in London and everyone else. I wrote this book um, in a very different way to anything I've ever written. As Mahmoud said, I've written six or seven other books, um, all of them written in a standard historical style. Um, no use of first person, no personal references, uh, no discussion of uh, my views uh, uh, of the things that I was witnessing or involved in. And in that respect, this book is very, very different. Um, it is aimed at, a, a, as much as possible, at a general audience, but it's meant to be as scholarly as anything I've ever written, in the sense that it has 45 or 50 pages of footnotes. Uh, I try and substantiate all of the arguments I make, and I make arguments that to a Palestinian or an Arab audience won't be controversial, um, some of them may be new, but they won't be controversial. But for a Western audience, to which this is mainly directed, um, they'll be shocking and new and controversial. And, and so I, I, hope to I hoped to substantiate all of the things I said in the footnotes. For other normal readers, there's no reason to even look at them, um, because I try and lay out a view of the history of Palestine, which is uh, comprehensive and quite different to anything that you'll find in the standard Western sources. Um, I argue that this conflict is not one between two, tra a tragic conflict between two national movements, uh, right versus right. It has nothing to do with those standard views of the conflict. Uh, I argue that from the beginning, this has been a colonial war waged by great powers together with the Zionist movement in order to replace the indigenous population of Palestine with a new population. Uh, I argue that there is nothing particularly unusual in settler colonial projects creating 
viable nation states. I live now in one of them. The United States is a settler colonial project. So is Canada, so is Australia, so is New Zealand. Um, Israel is similarly a settler colonial project. It's different than any other because it involved a movement that was not integrally connected to the mother country. In fact, Zionism didn't have a mother country. It had external patrons without which it could not have succeeded, starting with Great Britain uh, and then followed by others uh, in the 20th century. And I argue that in six cases, uh, these uh, connections with uh, external supporters involved a declaration of war on the Palestinians or a renewed declaration of war on the Palestinians. So that's the basic thesis of the book, that this is a colonial settler uh, project, uh, which has succeeded in implanting itself in Palestine with the indispensable support of external powers. It is still dependent on those external powers in a large measure for all of the power that Israel has, the nuclear superpower, one of the most powerful armies in the world and so on and so forth, vibrant economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it is still dependent on the external support uh, of uh, patrons, mainly today, the United States, but also Europe. So that's the thesis of the book. Um, the, different, the, 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 the difference between it and other things that I've written uh, involves my having tried to mobilize elements of family history mainly my family, but also uh, the, the histories and the memoirs and the memories of other people, um, as well as my own personal observations. Um, my father worked for the United Nations. Uh, I was present at the creation for some events. I was sitting in the Security Council as, an, as a visit in the visitor's gallery uh, during the 1967 war. And I describe an incident that took place when the Security Council was trying to impose a ceasefire on Israel and failed. Um, and I describe other events that I was much more closely involved with, including the siege of Beirut, uh, where I and Mona, my wife, and our, our, our kids, two of our kids, were, uh, were living at the time, uh, as well as my involvement in the 1991 to 93 negotiations that Mahmoud mentioned, the Madrid and Washington negotiations. So there's a, there's a personal element in this book, um, which relates both to family history other people's personal histories uh, as stories that I was told and things that I witnessed. Uh, I, I, I recount conversations that I had uh, with a variety of Palestinian leaders, notably uh, Abu Ammar, yes, Arafat, um, and I, I recount a number of other things uh, that nobody else witnessed. I was there and I saw these things and I'm just describing them. Uh, some of them my brother Reja witnessed and I mentioned a case in the 1982 war. Uh, some of them my children witnessed. I described things that I interviewed my daughters to get the details of. Um, so it is a personal history in a sense. It's not an autobiography. It has a thesis. It has an argument. It involves, uh, 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 as far as I, I was able to do it, as rigorous a scholarly apparatus as possible uh, while melding uh, this, this family history. So I think, I, I think I'll stop there uh, and hand over to Rana okay. uh, for some questions. Okay, um, thank you, Rashid. I actually have a bit to say before I start asking questions, so I hope you have a little bit of patience with me. Um, this is wild, I agree with you, it's crazy, um, but no more crazy than the, the, the parts of the history that you were talking about in this book. So I wanna thank you all for including me in this discussion today. Um, as a part of full disclosure, I've been thinking about and with Rashid for many, many years, more than I actually want to count. And being a former student on the critical end of a reading today is kind of a strange place for me to be. 
But to be fair, Rashid was he who gave me space as his student to write freely or as free as a historian can be. So we've been here before. I only hope that I've managed to give my own students the same safe space that nourished my younger and perhaps more angry self. The way I will go about this today, he's laughing, is to begin with a few vignettes from Palestine this morning. Through these, I will try to give a brief set of impressions um, born out of reading this book and then hopefully have a discussion between myself and Rashid and finally open up the space for audience questions. So with the vignettes, I wanna start with Wadad al-Barghuti. This morning, we awoke in Palestine to new scenes of destruction, new but not uncommon. My colleague at Birzeit University, Professor Wadad al-Barghuti's house, was demolished by the Israeli army. The soldiers with their big tanks and huge bulldozers came in like cowards in the dead of night and implemented a military order that they had supposedly put on hold due to the COVID-19 crisis. I suppose this is how settlers work to return to normal. What I wanna point out though, is that Wadad is remarkable. She herself was imprisoned after being attacked in her home. One of her sons, Kadmel, was only recently released and her son, Qassam, is still imprisoned by the Israelis since August of 2019, and he has yet to be charged with anything. And then came the iconic scene. Upon what might look like some ruins of a demolished house, Wadad planted a cactus. For ruins are not at all ruins in Palestine or for Palestinians. Wadad and her son are one of thousands, a story of a people. This is part of the ongoing Nakba. Home demolitions are historical forms of collective punishment that we know go back to the days of our revolutions in the, in the mandate period. But it's also been turned up a notch in frequency since 2012. Maybe the revolution has not ended if they're still practicing these forms of collective punishment. Or maybe we know that it has not ended because Wadad planted a classic symbol of life atop what they tried to destroy. This is the Palestinian part of the story. The second vignette is Mohammed Shteya. Later in the morning, the current Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority gave a news conference. In the time of Corona, pol politicians have been doing so daily. The PA has found a place for itself, arguably more solid than anything up to now that the PA has done since its inception in the mid-90s, the Corona Diaries in an official setting. Mind you, this is an authority which itself admits openly to having no sovereignty over the people and the land of Palestine, even in the small cantons scattered in the West Bank that make up the farcical notion of the state of Palestine in its most recent Oslo iteration. Shteya briefed the press about a number of issues, how many active cases of corona we have in the West Bank, what they might know about cases in Eastern Jerusalem, and then he com commented on the prisoners issue, referring to the next point that I'm going to make, but here let me just quote him. Quote, the prisoners issue is holy to us and we will not forsake it. Or maybe he said them, I was jotting it down really quickly. And then he mentioned Wadad and her home and condemned it. Wonderful political theater that we've been privy to on a daily since Corona became a crisis that could perhaps overshadow the ongoing crisis of settler colonialism. This might be the story of a failed political leadership. And the third vignette is a military order regarding political prisoners. This last scene uh, from this morning is actually scenes from this past weekend that were replayed on some news outlets here. Former political prisoners protesting against forced closure of their bank accounts upon Israeli military order. I have a student, Amani Sarahna, who is currently writing her thesis on the history of political prisoners and their hunger strikes. And I called her up this morning because I knew I wanted to at least mention the military order. Amani, in addition to being a current graduate student at Birzeit, works PR for Nadi Lassir a government NGO that is one of two organs that represents the prisoner movement. 
She tells me that the order is dated February of 2020. It's an amended order from February of 2019. But, and this is classic for my students, the specific details do not matter. For she explained, you know very well that this is settler colonialism and this is the long-term policy of vanishing resistance. When I mentioned this talk today, she asked that I emphasize that the military still controls the West Bank. It can be dressed up in whatever theater we can produce. This is one of many military orders issued by the army. This is obviously one of many attempts of erasure for prisoners, political prisoners captured, tortured, and locked away by the settler army are one of those final status issues that are actively being made into non-status, like refugees, like Jerusalem. This kind of erasure is not only supported by the US, it is, it is actively pursued as an official policy in the hallowed halls of both Congress and the White House. Perhaps this explains the deep connections between settler violence and imperial policy. These three moments over morning coffee, just from today on May 11th, actually give us a way of reading Rashid's new book. For in the argument of the book that Rashid just described, he gives his reader the tools by which to begin to unpack this morning and how we got here. I suspect we can perform this exercise again tomorrow over different vignettes and images that are produced every day. Generally, the point is history matters. We cannot possibly understand today without looking back and looking back for a century at least to understand what powers and mechanisms are at play today. This is hugely important, as Rashid explains, because we must break the monotony of the narrative hijacked by the two-state paradigm, which itself is a direct product of the Zionist storytelling. And we must see beyond the low ceilings of the language that has become hegemonic in discussing Palestine, be it the grammar produced by the Oslo process or the ahistorical rendering of the conflict of opposing nationalisms. For both of those purposely ignore the long history of imperialism in Palestine and in the Arab world and settler colonialism because Zionism is a settler colonial movement and the Israeli state is a settler state. Moreover, Rashid, Rashid's looking back is layered. It takes a pedagogical approach that weaves between the local, the regional and the global. On this last point, it is about the history of colonialism and empire. The best way to show this um, is how Rashid early in the text defines Zionism. I'm gonna quote, you know, a late, Quote, a late 19th century colonial national movement thus adorned itself with a biblical coat that was powerfully attentive to Bible reading Protestants in Great Britain and the United States, blinding them to the modernity of Zionism and to its colonial nature. For how could Jews be colonizing the land where the religion began? End quote. Rashid is actively fighting something here that should not go unnoticed. Zionist tropes of how Palestinians either did not exist in Palestine or did not know they were Palestine, Palestinian, or if they did exist here, they happen, if they happened to recognize that we were here, we didn't deserve to be here or exist. As ridiculous as this sounds, it is still the logic of Zionist policy and the language of the largest superpower in the world, or so they claim, the US government and the administration, which has, as Rashid notes, been completely in step with Zionist rhetoric since 1967 and mostly before that and even more so since the years have passed. Moreover, Rashid's emphasis in each declaration of war is hinged on this imperial connection, for he rightly emphasizes that without understanding both the context in which Zionism was born as an idea, 19th century European colonialism, and the context in which it has survived, full imperial backing, first from the British Empire and then the American Empire, one cannot understand the Palestinian struggle. In almost the same breath, 
Rashid defines the long trajectory of the war on Palestine, quote, as a colonial war waged against an indigenous population by a variety of parties to force them to relinquish their homeland to another people against their will. End quote. Again, the settler colonial, much discussed as of late, is a simple gesture here towards approaching, towards approaching Palestine with a full understanding of how the specifics and structures of settler colonialism differ from other kinds of colonialism. How much weight Rashid gives to this throughout the book is something I hope that we can discuss. For if an entity's roots are settler colonial, as Rashid eloquently explains, don't they remain so? Why does that matter? To be sure, and to remind his readers, Rashid notes that the so-called pioneers of, the Zionist, of Zionist ideology and the early military engineers of the movement were fully aware and quite open about their settler motives. By highlighting, highlighting Jabotinsky and his rendering of the Iron Wall, Rashid explains that Zionists knew what they were doing and what they wanted to do. The use of constant force to, in Ibrahim Abdullah's words, transform Palestine into the land of Israel. Clarity unhindered, neither with the mythology of, pure, of the purity of motives, nor the purity of arms, one of many famous Zionist lies. Rashid also points out that Jabotinsky has a long legacy in Zionist leadership that actually takes us in part through each of the declarations of war he describes, leading all the way to he who controls the state currently, Netanyahu. So Rashid is giving us tools by which to read history, the long history of violence against the native people in Palestine. But he's also giving us, albeit more subtly, a kind of history of resistance, Palestinian history and what sovereignty has meant for the national movements and all of the movement in all of its iterations. This is actually how I choose to read this book. Within the framework of the declarations of war, Rashid contextualizes like any good historian would. Watershed moments do not come from nothing and they do not most definitely lead to nothing. In doing so, he also notes contradictions, or what he describes as unintended consequences, of each watershed moment. In different ways, each moment, perhaps save the last, according to Rashid, in the six declarations produced devastating violence and destruction, but was also generative. Moments of reconstituting Palestinian national movement and strategies of resistance. Each moment bore witness to this, but I want to think with Rashid about how and why, and I hope to think aloud with him about how we narrate this how um, I'll be more specific about that in a minute. But towards this end, I want to do one last quote from Rashid, um, because I think this is actually how he ties the book together. Quote, with formidable international and imperial forces against him, the Palestinian, against them, the Palestinian people have remarkable resilience. This book will reflect this resilience and help recover some of what has thus far been airbrushed out of the history by those who control all of historic Palestine and the narrative surrounding it. Now, I can go on forever, but I promised I wouldn't. So I'm going to try not to. I'm going to turn to more specific questions that have to do with each declaration that Rashid narrates. But before doing so, um, I'm going to go through the six declarations, if you don't mind. So that's the back and forth. But before doing so, um, perhaps I can pose my first question to Rashid about why he chose the framework of war to, to begin with, to describe Palestinian history. Because as he said, this is certainly not his first book on Palestine, although it actually brings together all of his previous books on it. Um, so why, why did you choose this time to use um, the framework of war? Um, and then we'll go into each declaration, if you don't mind. So if you want to talk a little bit about the framework now. That's actually, that's actually a good question. Um, I chose the, I chose the, 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 the framework of both of the Hundred Years' War and of war for two reasons. The first is to relieve myself 
from having to think about Palestine in the 20th century. Uh, I read widely and I've been reading uh, histories of the Hundred Years War between the, the crowns of Britain and France. Uh, and I suddenly realized it clicked that this too is a Hundred Years War. Um, the Hundred Years War between Britain and France actually lasted over a hundred years and so is this one. Um, so that's one reason I chose that framework. I just happened to be reading a history of a hundred years war in the, in, the, in the 14th and 15th century and I said this is my this is my frame and I started to think about how I could disestablish the incredibly powerful false narratives um, that portray this as as I suggested at the beginning as some tragic uh, uh, struggle between two peoples that are are equally equally uh, justified in what they do and equally victims. Uh, and I, I realized that from our point of view, from a Palestinian point of view, we have always been under attack. I mean, I lived in Beirut for the 15 of the years of the Civil War, starting in 1973. We left, sorry, uh, 10 years of the Civil War. We left in, 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 in 1983. So for 10 years, we were under attack. That's not how we understood it. That was correct. We had uh, Lebanese militias attacking us, we had the Syrian army attacking us, and we had the Israelis attacking us. That was 10 years of war. And you look backwards and you see that that has been the case really very much since the beginning. The British, in fact, with the Balfour Declaration, declared war on us. They said, we don't exist. This is a national move. This is a people, the Jewish people described in the Balfour Declaration. There are non-Jews who don't get political rights, don't get national rights, have no existence as a cohesive national entity. And we're going to replace this lot with that lot. And we, our bayonets and our, our, our Royal Air Force are going to enforce this when necessary, which they did, together with demolition of homes, emergency regulations, uh, summary executions in the field, uh, Ord Wingate's night squads that blew, people, blew people's homes up over their heads and so on and so forth. And I, I came to realize that the history of Palestine could, in fact, easily be narrated exactly as we've always understood it, as a constant, unending colonial settler war on us, very much like the unending colonial settler war that started in New England in the 17th century and only ended uh, at the western parts of the United States at, at the end of the 19th century. Uh, that was a much longer uh, colonial settler conflict. Ours so far has only gone 100 years. Um, and then I, uh, having had some training as a diplomatic historian, I started looking at a variety of documents that I thought of in various ways, the Balfour Declaration, uh, the 1947 Partition Resolution, uh, UN Security Council Resolution 242 of 1967. And I realized that each of these in its own way constituted a declaration of war. And so this was a gradual process, starting with casual reading I was doing about the Hundred Years' War in France and continuing uh, through my rereading of these, of these key uh, documents. Okay. Great. So let's go through each declaration if we can now. Um, and when we're going through them, I want to keep in mind, I'll try to circle back at the end. Um, but the first, the earlier declarations, I think, for people that haven't read the book yet, and to encourage them to read it, is the first declaration, which is, it starts with Balfour, as you just uh, described, but you, you date it between 17, 1917 and 1939, right. um, which is essentially the building of the Paris state. Um, and the destruction of, of Palestine. But you're also really clear about understanding context again. 
Um, so it's not only the history of the mandate period, it's also you're including late Ottoman history and you're including the war, which is, which is, new, which is not new for the boutique style of historians that some, some of us are, but it is new for the general audience that you're talking about, sort of describing this context. Um, and that context and the layers of history that you describe with the imperial, with the imperial powers. Um, you're at your best here, honestly, when you describe British power and imperialism um, throughout, throughout the, the book. Um, that's, um, well, it's the diplomatic history part. I wanna specifically ask you about this concept of awareness that you mention often. Um, you're emphasizing the point that in spite of all the circumstances that you talk about in late Ottoman rule and the devastation of the war, people on the ground, Palestinians, were aware of what Zionist intentions were in Palestine. Um, you begin with the letter of Yusuf al-Khaldi um, to Wiseman, um, and, and you follow up with the 33, 33 exiled Palestinians. It was to Herzl. The letter was to Herzl. Oh, sorry, to Herzl. Sorry, that's my bad. And you go on to the 30, 33 exiled Palestinian notables who were moving from exile from Anatolia to Damascus when they sent a letter to Versailles, um, and you quote it, this country is our country. Um, you, often, you mentioned knowledgeable Palestinians as well. Why is a sense of awareness something that you wanted to emphasize as much as you did? Well, th that has to do with the thing you mentioned and which is in the subtitle, which is resistance. Um, this is not a story of only what the British did or what the Zionists did. This is a story, this is a history of what the Palestinians did to resist what was happening to them to uh, attempt to establish their own polity on their own terms. Um, and I try to show this is, of course, not everybody was aware in 1919 or 1929 or 1939 for that matter. Not everybody shared the same view. Uh, some saw different means of resisting as being uh, preferable. But it is pretty clear from a reading at least of the press, from a reading of the kinds of documents that are available to us that um, an overwhelming number of Palestinians understood perfectly well, in some sense, what was happening to them. And I thought it was really important to make that clear because this is systematically ignored in some tellings of the history. And of course, is ignored by the Zionists in their, in their uh, mythical narrative. Uh, and as it was ignored at the time by the British, as it is ignored today uh, by the United States. So I thought it was important to put that up front uh, understand that you are operating against not just the will, but the understanding of the people whom you're trying to trample upon. Okay, so we have a thread now. We have a thread of going between sort of knowledge and awareness, and uh, but that's connected um, almost like a devil's uh, deal with recognition. Um, and you describe that as a dilemma, and it's a dilemma that you can connect to today, but you were very clear about it in the mandate period about how seeking recognition from the same source that actually denied you your existence to begin with. Um, and how do, we, how do we understand that process at play? Yeah, you, you put your, your finger actually on something that I don't bring out maybe as clearly as I should. Um, because the PLO had exactly the same problem yeah. in, 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 di in different circumstances. Uh, that the Palestinian national leadership had in the 20s and the 30s. Right. The superpower, which is oppressing you, is expecting, in exchange for your obtaining something, that you accept things which negate your national existence and your national objectives. And that you accept things, you normalize things that are being done to you by a colonial settler power whose objective does not include compromise 
whose objective does not include sharing, whose objective is absolute control of everything to do with Palestine from the river to the sea and possibly even beyond, but certainly from the river to the sea. That was always Herzl's vision. That was always Weizmann's vision. That was always Ben-Gurion's vision. That was the vision of every leader in between them and the lot of liquid leaders who, who have been in power since 1977. None of them wavered from desiring everything. They, in some cases, were willing to uh, make small compromises over minor or secondary issues. Uh, and I could go into that. But by and large, they didn't, they didn't have any intention of sharing anything. As far as they were concerned, it all belonged to them. We didn't exist. And if we had to exist, we would exist on sufferance. The, the superpowers never fully admitted that this was what was at, at, at work. Never, never admitted it to themselves, or at least never admitted it publicly. Some of them, in private, knew what they were doing. Uh, uh, I, I describe a dinner party at which Weizmann in the early 1920s meets with Balfour, Lloyd George, oh Lord, let me turn this off, sorry guys, and turn it off. I, the last thing I expected was that I would get a phone call. Um, I describe a dinner party that Weizmann attended with Balfour, uh, Lloyd George, and Churchill. And they say to him privately, of course, what we said to you in the Balfour Declaration meant a Jewish state in all of Palestine. And we purposely prevented the Palestinians from having representative government because that would have prevented it. As soon as you're a majority, you can take over the country, it's yours. So privately, British statesmen knew perfectly well what they were doing with the coded, deceitful, hypocritical uh, language of documents like the Balfour Declaration and all the other documents generated by Britain uh, between 1917 and 1939. And the Palestinians were in a, in, a, in a dilemma. I describe it very clearly for the 20s and the 30s. I describe it perhaps less clearly for the PLO because in dealing with the United States, they basically faced the same problem. The Zionists weren't willing to give them anything, the state of Israel. Uh, the United States uh, wanted them to jump through a series of hoops that would have put them in a position uh, where they could not achieve their national objectives. So that dilemma is actually one of the threads of history that you know, it's not only the PLO, but sort of that horse that has perhaps obliterated the PLO, which is the PA, certainly not being apologetic to them, but it's a similar dilemma over the hundred year course that you're talking about um, with one sort of that is connected to the awareness and this kind of rec seeking recognition. But there's another way of telling history too that is also embedded in your way of telling history because that's one part of the Palestinian polity. Um, and in the 20s and the 30s, as in today, there's the other forms of resistance that don't necessarily, cannot necessarily be categorized. So are you choosing one kind of telling of history over another? Is there, is there, is there a lost history there? Yeah, I mean, this is not, I say at the beginning, this is not the definitive history of Palestine. Right. I, I don't have, I don't, uh, I don't uh, fool myself in thinking that I'm capable of writing that. That's a, it's a, first of all, the story is nowhere near finished. Yeah. And secondly, uh, you can't write in this history uh, to some extent. So there, it's unwritable in some ways, right? Yeah, in some ways. Uh, what I've tried to do is to, is to frame what has happened up to the present in terms of a context that's understandable. Now, there are many other ways of writing this. You can write uh, one of the very nice blurbs on the book by, uh, by uh, uh, I'm trying to remember her name, Dunbar Ortiz. Uh, she says, uh, this is a people's history of Palestine. I actually don't think it's a people's history of Palestine. My family is not an, is not, is, 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 was an elite family. It's yeah. written from the point of view 
of an upper class family. Those are the people I had access to. Those are the people who were literate. There is another way of writing this history, for example, using entirely oral history sources, the kind of thing that, that uh, Rosemary Sayet, the kind of thing that Julie Petit, the kind of thing that a number of yourself, a number of other historians have, have, have done, in which you completely ignore uh, the global level, the international level, you completely ignore the diplomacy, you completely ignore the machinations in the elite, and you look simply at how ordinary people resisted this settler colonial movement. That's another way of telling the history. There are 15 other ways, by the way, uh, 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 dissident, anti-Zionist ways, writing from within the Israeli or the Zionist historical tradition, also of telling this story. There are many very good Israeli historians who can give you versions of the history where they critique the Zionist narrative from within their own group. And those are also legitimate ways of looking at this history. Okay, so let's, I'm going to move on to the second declaration, which is 1947 and 48. And I think I just want to point out um, that this is about the work that I'm doing on right now. So it's not about a moment. It's not only about a moment. It's how Rashid is actually contextualizing it between, you know, the, the partition and what happened before the UN partition plan and the phases of the Nekba war and, and a phrase that you use, which is the ongoing Nekba. There's two points that I want to bring up here. And this is something that you brought up to us often in class is the Biltmore program in 1942. Um, that's something that you emphasize. A lot of people haven't emphasized it as much as you have. So it, that's something you can talk about why you're emphasizing it. And then I also want to talk about something that you beautifully describe as a tabula rosa moment, which is a completely different way of, of reading sort of beyond the Nekba. Um, and if you can just talk about what you mean by tabula rosa. Yeah, tabula rasa. Um, rasa. Let me talk about Biltmore. Um, we're not going to have enough time for me to go through all of these things. Yeah. So let me talk about Biltmore because I think you, you put your finger on something that I think is extraordinarily important. Um, the Zionist movement is remarkable. It's, uh, it's unique uh, in settler colonial movements in not being an extension of a mother country. French settlers in Algeria wanted Algeria to be part of France. British settlers in East Africa wanted Rhodesia or whatever it was to Kenya to be part of Britain and, and the British Empire. They saw themselves as extensions of the mother country. Same was true with, American, with uh, British settlers in North America until they declared their independence. The same was true and is true to this day of Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Not true of Zionism. Zionism had a, its own separate program. It was unique in seeking support from uh, 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 external backers. And the, uh, and, and, and the history, the history is very clear. Herzl tries the German Kaiser. Herzl tries the Ottoman Sultan. Herzl tries the French. Ultimately, Weizmann is successful with the British. The Biltmore Declaration is remarkable in that the Zionist movement in 1942 at a Congress in New York City at a hotel called the Biltmore Hotel uh, got together and did two really important things. It first explicitly said, we want a state in all of Palestine. They talked about the transformation of Palestine into a Jewish commonwealth, i.e. a Jewish state. First time they said that openly. They lied, they prevaricated, they concealed from Herzl right up to 1942, what their real objectives were. In private, talking to Lloyd George and Balfour and so forth, Weizmann would be very blunt. In public, never would they say, we're taking the whole country and we're gonna become a majority and we're gonna do whatever we want with you. That was never stated. Only Jabotinsky was honest in talking about what was involved, but most Zionist leaders were not. 
With Biltmore, they came out openly and said, we're going to transform the entire country into a Jewish commonwealth. That's the first important uh, uh, characteristic of the Biltmore Declaration. The second is that they performed a maneuver that they were to perform multiple times, which is leaping from one iceberg to another. Their relationship with the British had been destroyed by the White Paper of 1939. They were searching for a new patron. They were searching, as it were, for a new metropole. Most colonial settler projects have a single metropole, okay? The settlers in Algeria had France. They lost France, they lost uh, Algeria Francaise, it was gone. The Zionist movement is unique in having the ability to leap from one metropole to another to another. And that's what they did with the Biltmore Declaration. That's the second important thing. They decided we're gonna rely on the United States. So the Biltmore Declaration was both a statement of their intentions and a pivot to the United States as a primary backer. They were working on Moscow at the same time and they were successful ultimately. The partition resolution was created by, forced through, enforced, and uh, uh, really the creation of the United States and the Soviet Union. It would not have happened without both of them. Israel would not have been established without both of them. There would have been an entirely different future had the, had the Zionist movement not had the base within the United States in order to leap from the Biltmore Declaration to American sponsorship. And had they not had the base inside the Soviet Union to obtain Stalin's approval in 1947 for the partition resolution. It wouldn't have passed without both of those things happening. So Biltmore is crucial to this. Um, can I go I'd, on? I'd like, us, I'd like us to move on to one more of the declarations because we're not gonna have time otherwise. Okay. Okay, um, I'm actually, there's just two more questions and I'll put them into one. Um, mm -hmm. And you can choose to answer whatever part of it you want. So the, the 67, what I wanna focus on there um, is that you aptly point out that 242, which was the, which was the, you know, the, the result of that, that moment, that declaration was essentially the declaration of war. You aptly point out that that wiped out, it erased 1948. Um, right. And I think it's important for, for everybody to understand what exactly that means. And you talk about the language of it. Um, it's really important for us to sort of go into that and understand what you mean by erasure there, like how one declaration actually erased the entire history that came before it. Um, and then the last question has to do with all of the other um, moments that come together, which is essentially the history of the PLO. Um, and so you go from 82 um, to 87 and to 2000. Um, and so I, I kind of want to think aloud with you right now is that those are moments of defeat and, and in some ways moments of triumph, but is there another way of kind of reading that history as well? Um, mm. They're bad decisions, um, but they're also sort of that kind of resurgence that you're talking about. So you use the word resurgence. Can we, can we use that resurgence in the post 67 that you're talking about and how the PLO came about in thinking about any resurgence over time? Um, mm -hmm. And can, you know, can 2000 actually be resurgence? Can, can what we're living in right now, can we read it as resurgence? Is that possible? Because you talk about that kind of dialectic that produces resistance, but that fades away at the end of the book. So I'm thinking about sort of, can we think about that even if, I don't know if we're in a post-PLO history or not. I'm not sure if that's where we're at, but is this, can we also see this moment as a moment of resurgence? And then I have two more questions, but I can save those to when we're talking later. <laughs> Let me answer going backwards. Um, I, I wouldn't presume to predict whether we are in a moment of resurgence. Uh, I do in the book try and point out that there are forms of resistance underway now or, or in the process of formation, 
which may or may not have that potential. I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, I, I don't predict the future. It's not part of the job description of a historian. I can't tell you. Uh, it could be, and you were right in discerning a pattern that I try and describe in the book of the Palestinian national movement evolving, changing, and, and transforming itself. Um, and ironically, one of the unintended consequences of the 1967 war, which Zionism hoped would completely and finally eliminate the Palestine question and the Palestinians, was that it led to a resurgence of Palestinian nationalism, which in fact was already underway, but it gave it an enormous spur. Uh, and part of this was 242. Um, the great irony is 242, exactly as you say, was meant to lay to rest all of the unsettled questions of 1948. Question of refugees, the question of borders, every other important question was supposed to be laid to rest by 242. Most importantly, the Palestinians were not meant to be a party. This was now a state-to-state -state conflict. The question of Palestine, which is the form in which it was debated in the United Nations from, 19, from 1947 right up to 1967, was no longer meant to be on the agenda. The United States was going to broker, the United States and the, and the United Nations were going to broker state-to-state -state settlements between Israel and the Arab states on the basis of 242, in which the, all of the questions left over from 48 were completely ignored, except the question of borders and peace treaties, secure and recognized borders and peace. That was, that was 242, land for peace. Palestinians are not even mentioned in 242. It's of a piece with the Balfour Declaration, where the, Balf the Palestinians are also not mentioned. The country is disposed of in, without any mention of its indigenous inhabitants. And the same thing happens again in 1967. This is why I describe it as a declaration of war on the Palestinians. You don't exist. We are writing you out of the history. There is a refugee problem. They don't even dignify it by saying it's a Palestinian refugee problem. It's a refugee problem. And it requires a just solution. So. Um, ironically, uh, a resolution that was intended to eliminate the Palestinians helped to spur uh, their resurgence. Um, the, sa the same kind of thing happens after the 1982 war. Uh, Sharon and Begin assumed that attacking the PLO in Lebanon, installing a puppet regime in Beirut, kicking the Syrians out of Lebanon would lead to a destruction of Palestinian nationalism and would enable the absorption of the, of the occupied territories into greater Israel, which was their main objective. The irony of it was that, among other things, it led to the first intifada. And I describe that as one of the great victories, one of the few great victories in the whole, in the whole chronicle of Palestinian resistance. I describe other victories of the PLO. I think that the diplomatic achievements of the PLO have been very, very underestimated. And I think that if we look back to those things, both the first intifada and the, and the, and the efforts of the PLO in the 60s and 70s and 80s, uh, especially the 60s and the 70s, we will see some lessons that might be drawn for the 21st century. Are we going to open up to questions from the audience now, guys? Yes, if, uh, if, if that's okay with everyone, maybe we'll just start with taking questions. Do please uh, bring on your questions in the Q&A section at the end of the bottom of your screen. For those few hundreds with us on Facebook, do please write your questions on the comments on the Facebook Live and we try to feed them in as well. I, uh, I'll take the first question to you uh, both. Uh, it's from Raja. Uh, does yesterday's generation of Palestinian historians and today's see eye to eye on the role of the patriotic bourgeoisie in the national liberation struggle? 
Am I yesterday or today? I don't know which one I am, or she. <laughs> I think you're today. I think I'm yesterday. Okay. Um, so I'll let you answer the today part. I'll answer the yesterday part. Um, that's a that's a good question from a political economist. Um, I think the the Palestinian uh, bourgeoisie, like all bourgeoisies, as we are told by uh, Marxist uh, theorists from Marx through Lenin through Mao, uh, has a dual role. Uh, and th this brings up something that we don't talk about when we talk about resistance, which is that not, not everybody resists. Um, we think of the entire Palestinian people as heroically resisting the occupation. Many, many Palestinians simply get on with their lives. They neither resist nor collaborate. A few collaborate. And that's true of every people under occupation since the dawn of time. The Romans had collaborators. The British Empire had collaborators. An entire swath of the Indian aristocracy collaborated with the British, and another swath fought the British. Large parts of the middle classes of, 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 of Algeria, of Egypt, of Syria, of other Arab countries collaborated with. I don't mean, I don't just mean simply put their heads down and let you know, the tide pass over them. I mean, actually involved themselves in mechanisms of government designed to make the colonial power supreme. Uh, that's true of every, France, the, the, the history of the entire French people resisting is a myth. Every single French Jew sent to his or her death was delivered to the Germans by the French government. The Nazis did not go and pick anybody out of their homes in France. They did that in other countries. They did that in the Netherlands, for example, they, because the, the, the Dutch refused to collaborate. The French government picked up every single French Jew and many foreign Jews who were hiding in France and shipped them off to the death camps. Uh, over 40% of French Jews survived because other French people at risk of their lives refused to collaborate, protected those people. And so part of the French Jewish community was not shipped off to the death camps, but the ones who were, were shipped off by the French government, collaborators. So this is a common, this is a common pattern in human history. It's true of the bourgeoisie as it's true of every other class. Uh, there are elements of the Palestinian bourgeoisie who are profiting enormously from settler colonialism today. There are other Palestinians who have no choice, i.e. who are forced to work and build the settlements. I mean, there's a new book about the work that has been done by Palestinians building Israel. Who cuts rocks in Israel? Israelis? Jews? Not now, not ever. Palestinians. All the stonemasons are Palestinian. We've always known this. Uh, Men of Stone, I think, is the title of the book. So the answer to that question is pretty straightforward, in my view. Uh, the Palestinian bourgeoisie, like all bourgeoisies, like all classes, uh, has two faces. Some of them have been the backbone of resistance. Uh, the PLO was funded by pa the Palestinian bourgeoisie at the outset. I mean, there were ordinary people who contributed, but tens and tens and tens of millions before the Arab governments began to contribute were, were, were contributed by Palestinian uh, uh, engineers and accountants and so forth in Kuwait, in Qatar, in Saudi Arabia, and so on and so forth. Uh, that's the patriotic face of it. The, the PLO would not have existed. Fatah, Jabashabi, every single group you could mention which launched the armed struggle, which revived Palestinian nationalism, were funded by the Palestinian bourgeoisie at the outset. So like every class, they have two faces. Um, I think, I, you know, just, I'm, I'll be quick because this is about Rashid's work, but I think, I think there's, you know, there's, 
there's different ways as Rashid was describing earlier, writing history. I mean, in a traditional way, we call it social history or diplomatic history or political history or economic history. So I think, you know, how we focus doesn't necessarily, what we're writing about doesn't necessarily mean everything that we're thinking about. And I think when, um, when we do focus it, like I do on the mandate period, there is a need to focus on that period because it's about economic structures as well that, that Rashid brings out in, um, in the first declaration. Um, and that a lot of us work on. Um, I think the history of capitalism is something that's, that is a deep and important history to understand in the context of the Arab world, in the context of imperialism, and in the context of Palestine. Um, we saw Shadeen's work on men of capital that's describing sort of what a national, you know, describing a lot of things, but what is the, what is the contradiction between national and national bourgeoisie? And the, the last thing that I'll say to this is that I often use this technique when I'm teaching because Fanon is, is read, um, often read in Palestine. And I say that, you know, we no longer, after 1948, we haven't had a national bourgeoisie. And that's a really provocative statement, but it makes people think about what, what it means to talk about nationalism and, and class. And I think right now this is imperative for us to talk about because, um, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot going on in 2020. And one of them is that, you know, part of the Oslo process that Raja knows very well was the, you know, the, the most detrimental, in my opinion, part was the Salam Fayyad movement, right? What, everything that changed under Salam Fayyad, which made our world an economic world that was drowning in debt. Um, and so I think it's important to read these different concepts. Um, and debt is one of the concepts, another one of those threads that can go through all of, um, all of the phases that Rashid's describing. We have a couple more questions uh, that we're collecting from uh, the net. We have one from, I'll, I'll throw out two questions here and you pick your pick. Uh, we have Mustafa from Turkey today asking what your opinion is about the Ottoman Empire's position on, the colonial, on, their colo on colonial history in Palestine, claiming that a number of historians claim that the British colonialism was just a connection between the Ottoman colonial project, to the Zionist colonial project. Do you agree with that? Uh, the second question that we have is also from Professor Mamdouh Aker, who is here, who asked the question, do you think that the Oslo Accords were inevitable as what some of its supporters keep, keep to claim? Yeah, let me answer this, the first question very briefly. Uh, I, I, I see a disjuncture between the Ottoman period uh, and what happens after 1917, after the British occupied Palestine. Uh, I don't think the Ottoman Empire would have accepted the establishment of a Jewish settler colony in Palestine out of motives that had nothing to do with the welfare of the Palestinians, but the concern of the Ottoman authorities with large compact minorities, which uh, were supported by foreigners. Um, this ultimately leads to the to 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 the the uh, uh, Armenian genocide. It ultimately leads to the Greco-Turkish War and the population exchange, which eliminates these minorities. But the Ottoman state was obsessed uh, with compact minorities, uh, which enjoyed external support. It would not have, in my view, again, not out of any love for the Palestinians, but out of a desire to maintain its own territorial integrity have gone along with what Herzl and later Weizmann were trying to do. It required a foreign power like Britain, which desired to break up the Ottoman Empire, to fragment it and to take some of those fragments uh, to support the Zionist movement. Uh, 
So that's a, that's a brief answer to the first question. It's an interesting question because there are some other aspects to it, which I won't go into. Um, as far as Mamdouh's question, was Oslo inevitable? Um, I, I would say both yes and no. Uh, Mamdouh was a member of the Palestinian delegation, uh, which went to Madrid and then worked tirelessly in um, Washington for almost a little more than two years to try and obtain the basis of statehood and sovereignty for the Palestinians. I was an advisor to that delegation. We failed. Uh, had the PLO leadership, had the intestinal fortitude, the guts, the strength of will to support us, to push hard for the things that we were insisting on, an end, a halt to settlement, uh, uh, preventing the closure of Jerusalem, uh, a commitment to Palestinian statehood and sovereignty, and so on and so forth. The things that we were trying to do through a plan that we put forward called Palestinian Interim Self-Governing Authority, which would have given the Palestinian Authority complete jurisdiction over the entirety of the occupied territories, including the settlers with some exceptions. Had the PLO stuck to that, I think the thing would have broken down and I think we would have been in a better position. Now, they're not sticking to that and they're sending unqualified, incompetent people to Oslo to negotiate what Edward Said correctly called the Palestinian Versailles was in a certain sense overdetermined. It was overdetermined because of their stupid mistakes over the Kuwait war, which lost them most Arab support. It was overdetermined by their expulsion from Beirut in 1982 and the weakness of the PLO in the years afterwards. It was overdetermined by their uh, failure to understand that it was absolutely essential to continue to put pressure on Israel uh, uh, and not to call for the, for the halting of the first intifada. Uh, there were a variety of things that they could have and should have done. So it wasn't inevitable, but again, it was overdetermined. This was a leadership that, was, that had lost its ability to stay in exile because of their own mistakes over Kuwait. Uh, the only one of them who stood up against Arafat and, 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 and the consensus of idiocy, which called for supporting Saddam Hussein, was Abu Iyad, who paid for that with his life in, 19, in, in, in January 1991, uh, when he was assassinated by an agent of the Iraqi regime. Uh, the rest of them, like lemmings, went over a cliff uh, and supported uh, uh, Saddam in a way that put them in an enormously weak position uh, when Baker came calling uh, to invite them to Madrid. Um, I actually don't want to answer the question because that's Rashid's question. I just wanted the first part of the question when Rashid was talking about the Ottoman history. I think one of the benefits of reading this book is actually understanding, as I said earlier, how um, succinct and deep Rashid describes imperialism, in particular when he goes you know, in both in both cases with regards to the imperial um, American imperialism and British imperialism. And I think because we use the word empire with regards to the Ottomans, there's, there can be a danger of bringing that together. And so I think one of the, one of the benefits of reading this book and understanding what, what Rashid is talking about is that there's a very distinct kind of imperialism that's happening. That question. Imperialism. Thanks. Thanks, Rana. I uh, have two questions here. One is from Lily Habash. Uh, she's asking, you emphasized a rereading of um, UN Resolution 242 as a no basis for Palestinian state. Do you believe that the Palestinian leadership has had this awarenesses? And if they do, why do they continue on promoting this discourse? While it is obvious that it was not meant to lead to a state. That's one question. And if I can just follow up, um, 
uh, with a question from Jose uh, Vericat from Facebook. He's asking, Professor Khaldi, I'm wondering why you choose the framework of settler colonialism, how your work thought has developed toward this. I don't remember it in any of your other previous books. Um, let me answer both of these questions quickly. Um, they're both good questions. Uh, the PLO leadership understood perfectly what 242 uh, contained and what it meant. And for decades, well, the better part of a decade and, and a little longer, uh, they tried to evade 242. They tried to go around 242 because they understood that it was intended to prevent the achievement of Palestinian national objectives. Uh, they finally overcame their scruples and um, pretended they didn't understand what everybody, every Palestinian understood uh, when they finally accepted involvement in the so-called peace process. One of the, uh, one of the uh, preconditions for which was acceptance of 242. In my, in my view, I mean, I, 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 my, my view of 242 couldn't be clearer. Uh, it, it was intended to be a stake through the heart of Palestine and the Palestinians, the Palestinian national movement and Palestinian national aspirations. Um, the Palestinians would have had to launch an, an even more uh, intensive diplomatic process to overcome that. Because remember, 242 is not just an American declaration. Like the Balfour Declaration, it obtained international sanction. The Balfour Declaration became the basis of the mandate for Palestine issued by the League of Nations. 242 was issued by the United Nations Security Council. Soviet Union, Britain, France, and the United States and China all voted for 242. So you, it would have required an immense effort to go around it. And they ultimately seem to have decided that that was not, um, that was, that was not within their capabilities. Um, Jose's question about, you never asked this question in class, Jose, but I guess you hadn't seen the book when you were still in class back in the day. Uh, it's a very good question. No, I, I, I've referred to settler colonialism in my work before, but I never made it the framework uh, for an analysis. I mean, if you look at the Iron Cage, I talk about settler colonialism, an earlier book of mine, which I see somewhere on the shelf behind you, Tophie, or somewhere there, I see it. Um, and it's also available from the educational bookshop. You should all go there and buy it. Um, I do mention it, but I don't make, you're right, I don't make it the, 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 the I don't use it as the framework or for my analysis because I was never really trying to write a, 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 a history of Palestine. This is not a comprehensive history, but in some respects, it is a history of Palestine. And I think that that's the most, uh, by far the most appropriate framework. I should say one other thing, which I think that, that the ground is moving under our feet in the United States and Europe in terms of an understanding of this conflict. I think that people are ready to be confronted with what were previously unpalatable truths about Palestine. Uh, in the days of Edward Said, in the days of Ibrahim Abu Lohut, uh, the real pioneers, at least in the United States, in putting forward uh, the Palestine question, uh, they were extremely daring in saying things that had never before been said, uh, either academically or to public audiences or uh, in the media. Uh, they and a few others, Hisham Sharabi, Walid Al-Khaldi, Fuad Mughrabi, there's a group of people who were, were I could go on and on. There's many of them. Uh, very brave in putting forward elements of the Palestine question. Uh, they could not go as far as some of them wanted to because it simply would not have been accepted, even by people who might have been sympathetic to the Palestine case. A basis had to be laid. They laid part of the basis for that. 
another generation came after them and laid a further layer of understanding such that now the kind of arguments that I'm making in this book are, I'm finding from the responses I'm getting, uh, acceptable to broad ranges of opinion, uh, people in the Jewish community, uh, young people, minorities, but also even older people who are uh, settled in their understanding of some of the some of the mythical narratives that Zionism has 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 established. Um, people, things have changed, uh, so that you can use that as a framework, and it, it works for ordinary audiences up up to a point, which it would not have been the case in my view thirty or thirty or forty years ago. We have a, a couple of questions that came from online as well that wanted to sort of flesh out further. The, insofar as you've established the settler colonial paradigm as you, the, the working paradigm of how this conflict is supposed to be understood, what are the implications of this upon, upon resistance? Uh, so we have one question that sort of hints to that and, and another that, that follows up that says, how do you compare the victories of the PLO with all the Arab and international support of that era as successful resistance with the less successful resistance of today's PLO in a hostile international Arab and local neoliberal environment? Why is the former glorious and the latter viewed as despicable? So yeah. comments on resistance. Let, let me, let me, let me that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I think we have to put ourselves back in the 1960s when the, the, the Palestinian National Liberation Move, Movement reemerged. Um, that was an era of decolonization. The late 40s and the 50s were the beginning of decolonization. The 60s were a culmination of decolonization. It was the era of the Vietnam War. It was the era of uh, uprisings uh, all over the world. It was the era of the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Panthers. Uh, the Weather Underground, a, a humongous anti-war movement in the United States, uh, Paris 1968. The PLO arose and was able to be successful in a world that was very different to the world of today. There were two superpowers. There's one superpower today. Um, so uh, for many, many reasons, uh, the PLO in uh, uh, it was it was in, 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 in in tune with uh, the environment of the 60s and the early 70s. Uh, and it was enormously successful as a result. Uh, it would have had to adapt to a different world. One of the elements of its, of its success was that even though it received support from Arab governments, it always appealed over the heads of undemocratic, unrepresentative Arab governments to Arab public opinion. It was not afraid at the same time as it was asking for support from Egypt or Algeria or Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or whatever to speak directly to the Egyptian people and the Algerian people and the Saudi people and the Kuwaiti people over the heads of their mainly unrepresentative rulers. Uh, and this was an element of, of its enormous strength because Arab public opinion was with the PLO, even where the governments were conspiring against it, which most of them were most of the time. Uh, most of most Arab governments accepted 242, even though it it did not it, it it doesn't mention Palestine. They they didn't even insist that yes we need to have our territories liberated, but there has to be a Palestinian state or whatever it may be. The Arab governments again and again uh, uh, were a, 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 an obstacle to the PLO, but the PLO went over the heads of those governments. 
to Arab public opinion when it was successful in the 60s, in the 70s, into the 1980s. Uh, so it, it failed to adjust itself to the changes that took place after the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And by the way, the Soviet Union was collapsing through the 1980s. I was present when Yevgeny Primakov came to the Institute for Palestine Studies in 1982 in the spring and said, the Soviet Union is not strong enough to defend the PLR when the Israelis attack. They're coming. We don't, we don't think we, we cannot stop them. We cannot help you. You're on your own. We're barely, we're not sure we're going to, able to be going to be able to maintain our position in Syria. Primakov was a member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. He was the head of the Oriental Institute. We later find out he became the last head of the KGB and the first head of the FSB after the end of the Soviet Union. So he was a senior intelligence official, a senior party official, one of the top, the top Orientalists in the Soviet leadership. And he was bluntly telling us, the Soviet Union is too weak to stop the Israelis. So when you talk about the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, 1991, Soviet Union was already weak in 1980, 81, 82. And he came and told us that as much as that himself. And he said the same thing. We were the researchers at the Institute for Palestine Studies. He said the same thing to, I mentioned this in the book, by the way. He said the same thing to the PLO leadership. They understood this. So how do you adjust to a new world like this? This is not easy. And this was a, one of many failures of the PLO leadership in the 1980s. It required, it would have required inordinately adroit diplomacy, which they simply proved to be incapable of, and one reason they were incapable of it was that the enemies of the PLO, most, impo most importantly, of course, Israel, but also Arab regimes that were supposedly friends of the Palestinian people, like Libya and Syria and, and, and Iraq, the Saddam's regime, Hafez al-Assad's regime, Gaddafi's regime, were murdering Palestinian leaders. Most of them are killed, of course, by the Israelis. Uh, there's a whole book about that called Rise and Kill First, a horrible, horrible chronicle of the assassinations that Israel carried out against the PLO. But they were helped by these three Arab, these three hateful Arab regimes. So the best and the brightest were being taken out one by one, Abu Iyad, Abu Jihad, and so on and so forth. Uh, Kamal Nasser, I could go on and on. I could talk until next week, giving you the names of, of important leaders who were murdered in this way. Uh, what we were left, left with were those who were neither the best nor the brightest the dimmest and the worst. And that's what was left in the PLO leadership around Arafat uh, by the end. And their decisions really did not rise to the level of the decisions that the people who, who established this movement, whether George Habesh or, or Abu Ahmad himself or, or the rest of them uh, did in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. All right. Uh, we wouldn't sleep tonight without asking you about the deal of the century and the Trump plan and whatever you want to call it. And I want to frame that with a question we got from Rula Shahwan as well. Uh, the question reads, how you can read the Palestinian future based on your reading uh, for the past? Are there any lessons to learn? And perhaps maybe a, a vision or a, how do you see? I know you don't have a crystal ball in front of you, Rashid, but maybe what, how do you think it's developing? How do you see it developing in Palestine in the coming years? within the Trump administration and the new Israeli government, and of course the uh, chaos or the uh, fauda of the BLO slash BA and the rest of it. Right. Well, those of you sitting in Palestine can speak better to the chaos of the PA. I don't suffer under that misgovernment. I, I suffer under different misgovernment here in the United States. Um, and you, you, you're, better, you're better positioned, all of you, whether in Jerusalem or Ramallah or Khalil or wherever you may be, um, to analyze that aspect of it. Um, but as far as the Trump plan is concerned, um, if we're fortunate, 
if the world is fortunate and the United States is fortunate, we will only have Trump to deal with until uh, January 2021. His monumental incompetence in dealing with this, the greatest crisis the United States has faced at least since the Great Depression or since World War II, may be enough to drive him out of office. If not, we're all in real trouble. Uh, not just Palestine, the whole world is in real trouble. Um, inshallah, he will be defeated in, in January 2021. But the damage that he has done will be in some cases lasting. Uh, and I don't think it's just a matter of the Trump plan. I think that we have to think in more holistic, broader terms. Um, I think that we are now uh, facing a set of realities which we have to be blunt about. It is very clear that for more than half a century, only, there, is, there has been and is very likely for some very long period into the future to be only one sovereignty in Palestine, and that's the sovereignty of the Israeli settler state, settler colonial state. That state established on the basis on which it was established uh, is structured to prevent e equality, to, to, to inst institutionalize discrimination, to uh, 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 arrogate to the Jewish people and the Jewish people alone rights and privileges, and to, and to take away as much as possible of the land, of the rights, of the freedoms of the Palestinians. Now, why am I nevertheless optimistic, even though that is an ongoing process that I think we're going to have to acclimatize ourselves to in one respect? I'm optimistic for two reasons. All that they have done since Herzl, since he wrote his book in 1897, all that, the, that they have done with the support of Britain and Soviet Union and France and the United States has not overcome the Palestinians. The Palestinian people still resists, still holds on to the land. We still constitute a majority of the population in historic Palestine. So there are these assets that the Palestinians have that one of the most intensive settler colonial processes in modern in history has failed to dislodge. And, and so I'm not just talking about resistance, I'm talking about factors um, which uh, Zionism has been completely unable to overcome. Moreover, Zionism is not, and, and is the Israeli state, is not some kind of natural nation state. It is a settler colonial reality. It did not exterminate, extirpate, completely subjugate the entire population, or you would not have border guards and, and, and paratroopers blowing up with uh, al-Barhuti's uh, home this morning. They would not be engaged in the repression they are engaged in. They would not be spending tens and hundreds of millions of dollars fighting BDS if they had already won. You did not have the cavalry riding around Los Angeles or Santa Fe or Austin, Texas in, 20, in, in, in 1970 or 1950 or 1920 or 1910. They had finished with the Native Americans. They have not finished with us. Moreover, they have not established as Canada or Australia or New Zealand or the United States did, a completely successful autonomous settler colonial project, which has completely replaced the original native indigenous population. Israel still has more than 50% of the population under its control, which are not part of their national group. And they're not autonomous. 
you can take apart, you can look at the capital inflows to Israel, whether in the form of investment, whether in form of charitable, so-called charitable donations, in the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, in the billions of dollars a year, not even to speak of the $3.8 billion the United States gives. You can look at the record in the United, in the, at the United Nations, where without the United States, Israel would have become a pariah state, to understand that this is a settler colonial project that is completely dependent in certain respects on external support. Does not work without external support, okay? The colonists in the United States, where I am now, were not able to stand on their own two feet without the British until just before the revolution. It required redcoats to defeat the French, it required redcoats to defeat the Native Americans. This, this project became successful and autonomous in 1776. Others re required even longer. Some never became independent and successful, like Algeria. The Zionism is still utterly dependent on the United States and Europe in certain key respects. That is a source of vulnerability. That is a, an area of enormous opportunity for the Palestine cause, an enormous opportunity. Zionism is inherently illiberal and anti-democratic. It calls for a minority to rule a majority. It calls for one people to have rights and another people not to have rights. Those ideas are incompatible with liberal democracy. As long as the United States and Europe continue to be liberal democracies, they may not, but as long as they continue to be those things, they are uniquely vulnerable. And that is, a, that is why BDS is driving them absolutely crazy. That is why you have a Ministry of Strategic Affairs whose whole job is to fight EDS. That is why every billionaire, every Zionist billionaire is giving tens of millions of dollars to fighting BDS because they understand that vulnerability. That is why they are terrified that they're losing the younger generation in the Jewish community in the United States because young people are open-minded. Young people have access to information in the United States. And suddenly they're realizing whether they're Jewish or they're African-American or whatever they may be, this is an anomaly. This thing that the United States supports and created and, and, and which would not subsist and survive without that support is behaving in ways that are reprehensible, unacceptable towards an entire people. Those realities are beginning, beginning to break through in the United States. They haven't reached the media fully, the, certainly the mainstream uh, media. They certainly haven't reached the political level in terms of the Republican Party or the leadership of the Democratic Party, but they are operating with increasing force at the base in American politics, in churches, in unions, uh, among minorities, among young people in the Jewish community. There's enormous ferment going on. There's, a, there's an opportunity there. And the reconstituted, uh, the revived Palestinian national movement will pick up some of the lessons just to answer another part of a question. There are many lessons uh, in the history of the PLO. There are many lessons from Palestinian uprisings in the past, successful ones and failed ones. Uh, the second intifada in my view was a failed uprising. The first intifada was a successful one. Uh, I could go, I go through these things in the book, some of them. Um, and it is clear that we can learn a lot of lessons uh, from those failures and those successes, whether the success of the PLO's diplomatic campaign. You have to be talking to the Arab people. You can't say, uh, uh, I, I completely support what Saudi Arabia or Egypt or whatever it is does, and say nothing over the heads of the people, over the heads of those regimes to the Arab people. These are not, these, pe these regimes don't represent the Arabs. These are not the Arabs. These are the people who are stealing the wealth of their countries and are oppressing their own people. There are three or four democracies in the Arab world. They're in the whole Middle East, in fact. And with those few exceptions, um, 
the Arab world is governed by despots, by absolute monarchs, by military dictators who are hated by their people and who rule in spite of their people. We have to speak over the heads of those despots to their people. And it, that's a delicate, there's a delicate path to tread. The PLO leadership did it brilliantly, actually. It was one of their greatest successes was in, in dealing with some of these rulers who are hateful, reprehensible figures individually and whose regimes were, were noxious and in which in some cases were actively undermining and fighting against the PLO. I remember when we were in Beirut, um, one day we were picking up uh, the remains of mortars and we, we found one that was, that was manufactured in the Iranian national arsenal under the Shah and one that was manufactured in the Saudi national arsenal. The phalangists were getting, and the, and the Ahrar were getting uh, ammunition uh, from the Saudi regime and from the Iranian regime at the same time. And this at the time when we had Israel and the Syrians also uh, attacking us. Um, at the same time, the PLO was able to uh, obtain certain kinds of support from Saudi Arabia. Yeah, that, 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 you can walk and chew gun, gum at the same time. And it requires an adept leadership to do this kind of thing, not the kind of, 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 of I won't even call it a government, not the kind of outfit that you have uh, in Ramallah or in Gaza for that matter. Um, it, it requires also an ability to understand um, something that, that uh, for all of his faults, Abu Ammar understood, which was that you have to be independent of these regimes. You have to be completely independent. Al-Qarar al-Falastin was something he just said it again and again and again. It became a cliche. But he, he understood that he had to balance between these governments. And he had to, at the same time, appeal over the heads of these governments. He and the whole leadership. It wasn't just him. This was a collective understanding. And we have to develop a leadership that's able to do that in the Arab world and globally. At the same time as we're appealing to public opinion in the United States, in a way, and for that matter, in Israel, in a way that the PLO leadership was never able to do. They were very good in the third world. They were very good in the Arab world. They were very good in Europe, actually, in, in understanding how to tailor the, the message, the Palestinian message. They were terrible as far as the United States was, was concerned. And I, 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 I mentioned a few stories in the book of, of disappointments that we had uh, in that regard. So that's my answer, very long answer to that question. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Khanadi, for that uh, discussion and uh, all your input and insight. It was a fascinating discussion. I, I think to sort of, uh, we're more or less on time right now. I want things to sort of peter out in people's attention. It's certainly taxed online these days, uh, but I, I've certainly been uh, you know, found the whole discussion very stimulating. Uh, we've been having today the discussion on the 100 Years War on Palestine, Professor Rashid Khalidi's book launch in Jerusalem. It's been a three-way partnership with the Council for British Research in the Levant, the Educational Bookshop, and the Khalidi Library in the Old City here in Jerusalem. Uh, if, to take a look at all of our websites for forthcoming events because we intend to have more stimulating talks, uh, both on books and other lectures and different kinds of uh, uh, political and academic engagements in the future. So keep an eye out on our websites. I'm going to hand off to my colleague Mahmoud Muna from the Educational Bookshop now to give you some insight on how you might be able to purchase the book. But from our side at the Council for British Research in the Levant, thank you to Professor Khalidi and thank you to Dr. Barakat for being the engaging discussant, for making, facilitating that discussion overall, as well as to the audience for having attended this discussion. Thank you. And now to Mahmoud.
Thanks, thanks, Sophie, and thanks again, Dr. Rashdi and, uh, and Rana, and for Maggie in London, who've been backstage operating all of this. Uh, sorry for all the people who we couldn't get you in Zoom. We tried to get you in Facebook. We had a couple of hundreds of people following us on Facebook. Uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, we hope uh, that in the future we'll not have to do that, and we will have Rashid in his home, in his city, uh, in his place here in to address you, inshallah, soon after this uh, difficult times. Um, many people have been asking about the book. The book is available in the bookshop. Uh, of course, you have uh, the free will to buy whatever you like. We would love you to buy it through the bookshop. We are talking to Rashid about creative ways of getting it signed and sent to you. Uh, get in touch with us. Otherwise, the books are available in the bookshop. It's a good time also to support local stores and local bookshops, whether you choose to support us or to buy it from somewhere else, please do consider to buy it from an independent bookstore if you so wish to do so. Uh, thank you again. Happy uh, Ramadan for those celebrating it. And we hope to be in touch with you soon again. Thank you very much again. Thank you very much for doing this. And let me just say quickly, everybody who can buy the book, please do buy the book from the Educational Bookshop if you're in Palestine or from independent booksellers if you're somewhere else. Um, they deserve to be supported. Um, we need them. And we need, we need the Educational Bookshop in Salah Haddin and in the, in the American colony, and we need independent bookshops everywhere. Thank you, everybody, for, for doing yeah. this, and thank you, all of you who attended. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for including me in this, and um, uh, thank you, Mahmoud and, and Rashid, for letting me do this. It was pretty awesome. So thanks, everybody. <laughs> thanks. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.